Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director at EAA and one of your hosts today. Across the table. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, today we are uh, outnumbered by our guests, which we usually try <laughs> yeah. to avoid here. Yeah, but, that's uh, <laughs> dangerous. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but you want to uh, introduce us to our uh, to our esteemed uh, guest today? Absolutely. Um, I think anybody uh, that's a fan of... Uh, um, military aviation, especially uh, jet-powered aircraft, uh, has to be a fan of the F-117 Nighthawk, or the stealth fighter as it became known. And today we have uh, not one, not two, but three uh, aviators who flew the F-117. Uh, so with us today we have Colonel Al Whitley, we have Colonel Ralph Getchell, and Colonel Greg Gagne. Um, gentlemen, thank all of you for being here. We also have their wives with us here. They were able to join us, so uh, I just want to thank the six of you for making the trip up to, to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to share some time with us. Our pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and also they'll be joining us uh, tonight for EAA Speaker Series, which uh, for those of you listening, it's too late for you, but, uh, but make sure to... Uh, <laughs> Boy, you missed a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah, yeah, yeah the, especially that one part, right? Oh, that one part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but do check, um, our, you know, if you're local to the Oshkosh area or ever want to make a trip sometime when it's not AirVenture, uh, be sure to check our social media and our website uh, and our uh, online newsletter for, uh, for future uh, dates for this, uh, for this series. So um, with that, uh, Chris, I guess I'll, I'll kick it over to you to, uh, to kind of ask, you know, what we usually ask for the introductory questions for our, uh, for our guests. Here. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite questions to ask because everybody has a story. Um, what first made you want to fly? Well, for me, as a child uh, growing up, uh, I was the child of a World War II veteran. My dad worked for a company in which there was a retired... Uh, military aviator who was uh, the president and CEO of a textile organization being from the south and he was a big collector of military aircraft and he shared this collection with the people who worked for his organization and so we as kids would just climb all over a variety of military aircraft and been a little bit older than these other guys, uh, I remember Korea. Uh, had the opportunity uh, to visit the local airport, just watching it. But what, the moment that really struck me was uh, when I had my first ride on a T-33 in the back seat. Uh, my timing was such that uh, my choices were go through ROTC in college or not go to college and be a, a grunt in the United States Army going to Vietnam. And frankly, when I went to field training between my uh, sophomore and junior year and had that first orientation flight, I'll never forget. It was at Myrtle Beach Air Force Base, took off. I'll never forget, we broke ground, not a cloud in the sky, and that contrast to the ocean and the white sand, and I said, gosh, this is what I want to do. And that was that moment that really struck out for me. And I had a great uh, guy in the front seat, and. Uh, that was that was a magic moment for me. Wow, that's awesome. Um, how about you, Colonel Getchell? Well, I'd like to point to say that my father, who was in the military, 
inspired me to aviation, but actually he was trained to be a AAA battery commander, so that didn't <laughs> help out at all. But my mother was a Navy wave during World War II and was a link trainer operator, and she brought with her the Navy how-to-fly manuals and all that things that I just devoured. And in junior high and high school, I lived on a ranch in Central Florida that was in the running line for the Navy Pine Castle air-to-ground range, or uh, gunnery range. And so I could be down there sh shoveling horse apples or whatever it is that, <laughs> that a ranch boy does, and there'd be the A3s and A4s and F4s, A5A vigilantes roaring overhead, and I'm looking up and going, boy, that looks like a lot more fun than I'm having down here. <laughs> and I did a little investigation and found out that the Navy guys were on an aircraft carrier, and there was no women on the carrier, <laughs> no no beer on the carrier, and that that launched me on a on a career in the Air Force for sure. <laughs> Although my dad wasn't uh, an aviator, he was on the Coast Guard uh, World War II time frame. When I was young, very young, he took me to an EAA gathering back when it was in Rockford. And I got my first flight oh, cool. in a gypsy moth, open air. I don't remember. I was eight or nine years old. And it just kind of set a spark. My father was always an aviation enthusiast. And then uh, as I was getting into high school, I just always thought, well, be, flying fighters would be like the greatest job in the world. And early in high school, I had a cousin that went to the Air Force Academy. And I got to thinking I was also the oldest of seven children in the finances of going to college, it made a huge difference if the government was sending me to college and I got a chance to be a pilot. Boy, would that be cool. I was able to get into the Air Force Academy, trained there, went to go to pilot training, and it was just kind of always been my goal to head in that direction. I didn't necessarily have a specific path, but it worked out, and there we have it. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. You have an EA tie if you're uh, early flight. Uh, mm -hmm. That's pretty wild. It's grown a bit since Rockford. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah we noticed. <laughs> so, uh, Carl Gagne, we just heard your first uh, experience in an airplane. Uh, what about the other two of you? Uh, what, 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 did you what was the first airplane you ever flew in? Well, following uh, pilot training. No, I, I just mean like as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. As I said in yeah. the uh, T-33. Okay, that's an awesome first flight. That is an awesome yeah. first flight. <laughs> cool young eagle flight. It really yeah. was. And of course, it, uh, during that time frame, uh, there was a program in ROTC for juniors and sophomores to uh, get their pilot license called the Flight Instruction Program. Mm -hmm. And I went through that and, of course, into the Air Force and uh, on the pilot training. Wow. But my first airplane uh, operationally was the F-100. Which kind of inter was interesting about that, as a kid growing up, uh, I mentioned that my first flight in the T-33 was uh, there at Myrtle Beach Air Force Base. Yeah. Well, it happened to be the 354th wing was there flying F-100s. Hmm. And so as a kid, I got to see a lot of Huns, and I never thought that I'd be one of those guys flying the F-100. It's an amazing airplane. Yes, it is. <laughs> How about you? My first flight was in a, uh, a Tri-Pacer. And my, I had a, I had a friend in, in elementary school was interested in aviation as well, and my brother and we saved our money and we had our parents take us out at the airport and got a little introductory flight. 
and the next one after that was on my way to the Air Force Academy. My Academy liaison officer, now this is in Central Florida, had a steerman, oh, and wow. he put me up in a steerman to go flying, and that open cockpit experience was quite a thrill. That is, that I was is that's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and it's a step up from a tri-pacer quite a bit. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll talk a little bit about how you guys transitioned into the F-117 program. Um, and uh, Colonel Whitley, I guess we should start with you since uh, you, you were there from pretty early on. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, in the uh, late 1980s, I received, I, let me back up a bit. In late 1980, uh, I was just finishing the A-10 Fighter Weapons School and being reassigned there at Nellis to be the Assistant Operations Officer in that unit. Something I'd really wanted to do for some time, really looking forward to it, but no sooner had I arrived in the squadron that I got a phone call from this uh, gentleman I had never met before who asked me if he could meet me in a specific building, a specific room, at a specific time uh, in several weeks ahead. This guy's name was Bernard Bob Jackson. Uh, quite a character in his own right, and uh, on the predetermined date and time, I arrived there, knocked on the door. Door opens about an inch, and I hear this little voice says, Are you Whitley? I said, Yes, sir. He said, Let me see your ID card. I slipped it through the door, and who knows what's going on, on the other side. He's probably chuckling or whatever, but uh, he invites me in, and we have about a three- to five-minute interview that uh, everything he offered was great, but not assured. Uh, I took him up on his offer, and that's how I joined the unit and made a commitment uh, at that time. And two or three months later, I was one of the first in what was called the initial cadre to uh, show up. We, we didn't have a permanent place to stay. We had a couple of uh, single-wide trailers on the flight line at Nellis Air Force Base. And I spent about four and a half, five years uh, with the unit. And I watched it go from obtaining our first A-7 to becoming an A-7 unit uh, with, uh, as our cover story of doing avionics testing and of course, I was, uh, for whatever reason, nothing uh, unique about me because there were several very talented and capable people in part of that initial cadre. But Colonel Jackson, for whatever reason, he did uh, elected to uh, have me be the first operational pilot. Now, I've had two theories about that. The first is, is I was expendable. <laughs> <laughs> And so if it didn't work out, uh, nothing was lost. But, uh, and as it turned out, uh, that, that was a very unique experience. And then, of course, uh, being the first operational pilot, I helped check out the next guy and so on and so forth. And eventually, uh, we received airplanes one at a time, and we checked out people one at a time. And by, while the intent was by 1982 to have a limited operational capability, we simply just didn't get the airplanes fast enough because of some uh, challenges that they had faced in that process. And just learning how to build it. Exactly. Uh, and each airplane was very unique in its own right with those first few coming off because the lessons were being learned very quickly and adjustments were being made in the uh, production. And June of 85 rolled around. Uh, 
I had basically uh, evolved into being the training squadron uh, commander. And I, I uh, left the unit about four or five assignments later in uh, August of 1990. I showed back up on the doorstep. Uh, and so we had come all the way back to Bandit 150 and being the first operational pilot, that's uh, how we came about my bandit number. And these two gentlemen have their own they'll share with you. Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, and uh, so I had gone full circle from uh, being the first operational pilot to uh, being put into position that uh, we were getting ready to take this airplane to uh, not won't say war for the first time, but to put it to test in terms of its stealth capability. Mm -hmm. We knew it was a, a precise attack weapon system that we had used in Panama, but uh, we were really getting ready to uh, put everything to the test. And, and I mean, when I say I showed up on the doorstep, literally, <laughs> uh, I rolled, my wife and I rolled into town on a Thursday afternoon. We had the change of command on Friday morning, about four hours later, I was told to go to the command post. We uh, had our deployment order. Fortunately, these guys had been training for weeks on end. They and all the maintainers and the logistics people, they were ready to go. All I had to do was stay the heck out of the way, <laughs> quite frankly. And uh, But Ralph and I were on our way within about 48 hours in the C-5, yes, along with a mission planning van. And we uh, hopped across the states into Germany and got to pay a little visit to the wing commander <laughs> at uh, Rhein-Main, I think it was. Making friends everywhere we went. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we were not the most popular guys. Uh, and we requested a, a brief meeting with the wing commander. And we didn't have to pull out our secret letter out of our billfold. But uh, he got the message and got us on our way. and. Really, things just really fell in uh, together. But that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But. <laughs> One thing I've been uh, curious about, and, and you know, as, as you guys tell the stories about how you guys inter integrated, um, feel free to, to elaborate on this. But um, how hard was that trying to maintain the cover story while also integrating into the F-117? Like, what, what did, was there was there like good research that was actually coming out of that program, or was it just a complete cover? And how much of a distraction was that as you were as you were trying to integrate? Well, I think there was there was two purposes. One that was just maintaining the cover story, but the other is when you got into the program, there was a significant amount of time from the time you were in briefed and traveled up to Tonopah before you actually flew the airplane. In my case, entered the program in, in, in June, and I didn't check out in the airplane until uh, late February, that, that okay. ballpark. Yeah. And so, that, so the A7 was the thing that you were maintaining your flight proficiency in, especially at night, so you're getting your night okay. chops up and, yeah. and practicing on range, and that really set the stage for when you went into the into the black jet, yeah. and we did have a very few guys had not flown single seat before too, and so it was a good. That's one of the guys, step. for example. Yeah. Now my story is a little different because I didn't enter the program till it had actually been released publicly. It came out in I want to say November of 80, 98. 88. 88. 88. I'm sorry, eighty eight. And I entered the program December of eighty eight. So it was released. I didn't have to worry about the A7 cover story 
I just entered the program, and my checkout was much quicker because I didn't have to carry the cover story. I didn't have to fly the A7s. It went right into the, the black jet, as we called it, and it just progressed from there. I'd say part of what made it easier was the fact that we were operating out of Tonopah test range. So when Monday, we a certain number of the pilots would crawl into the A7s that were on the Nellis ramp there, and they would disappear as far as the Nellis community was concerned. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us got on 737s, and we left. Mm -hmm. And that was that was about noonish on Monday, and about just before noon on Friday. Seven thirty-sevens had come back. The A7s had come back, and where were you? Can't tell you. And that's that's how it worked. Yeah. That sounds really awesome, by the way. I can't tell you. <laughs> well, but, it, but it's a yeah. but it's a testament to to all those people that that kept the yeah. kept the secret. Uh, like Al, I was at Nellis Air Force Base when I was recruited to go up to the program. And I had flown one of the A7s from from uh, from Alex years before that got got delivered. I I knew a bunch of the people in the program, and I had no idea what they were doing. Wow. Later on, uh, after after the war, actually, the town of Tonopah put on a little do for us, and it was a great opportunity to thank them because the people in the town of Tonopah. I mean, they're out there in the desert. They know what's going on, and they kept their mouth shut. They didn't say anything, uh, and they're as responsible for keeping the secret, I think, as the rest of us. Wow. That was one of the greatest post-war celebrations that occurred in this country, and it was a secret. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Yep. It's very special. Well, let me ask you, this is a question I always like to ask folks associated with a certain airframe. Um, what, how did you feel? What was your first impression walking up to this aircraft and seeing it for the first time? For me, it was in the spring of 1981 that I saw a photograph uh, of what this was going supposedly going to look like. And if you go back in time with a young child, most of us had about that time is Star Wars. Darth Vader, those yeah, are the things yeah, that yeah. kind of jump out. I mean, even before you have your first thought about what it might be, how it might operate, how fast it might go, what is the mission, it's, oh, my gosh, Darth Vader lives. <laughs> and, uh, of course, there were a few questions that those who would introduce you to it, and then we had subsequently had the opportunity to do the same thing with others about what do you think it is, what do you think it does, how fast do you think it goes, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there were a variety of answers along the way. <laughs> One of the, again, I was a little bit later in the program and I'd seen pictures. <clears throat> it was very dramatic. And one of the first things that came to my mind was no wonder they kept it secret because pilots aren't going to admit they f fly something that looks like that. <laughs> it doesn't look like an airplane. And that, that kind of went through my mind. It was very dramatic. And it was just, oh, wow. But oh, that thought crept in. As I was looking at the airplane. Yeah, beautiful is not a no. term I've ever heard used <laughs> to describe the, describe the airplane. And I, uh, each of the, up at Tonopah, each of the airplane had its own hangar. So I think for a lot of us, yeah, we saw the video when we were got our security in brief. But the first, hey, I want to see the airplane. I want to lay hands on this thing, is they would bring it out 
at night because everything was everything was done at night and they'd take you to, to a hangar and the internal lights would off and so they'd open the door and you get in and then they close the door and you're just standing there in in the dark and you just kind of you know feel in this presence <laughs> and then they flip on the light switch so those big arc lights whatever they are up top light up and here is this thing just like you said Darth Vader it, it, really dramatic it never ceased to be impressive it, it, every time to walk to it yeah. absolutely but having said that as you walked around the airplane it looked different from every angle the Darth Vader look that you saw up front with the canopy open and the big jagged engines that all gave way to now you're to the side view and where the cockpit is, and it kind of looks like a pyramid, and the fuselage is shaped like a flounder. Well, that and you looked at the canopy, and you go, it's got a roof on it. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you look at the back end and say, well, where's the rest of it? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you guys say that, because I, when I was a kid, I had a plastic model of an F-117, and, and that, was the one th that was the first impression I had of it, is I would just kind of reorient it in my hands all the time. I was like, there is no angle of this airplane that doesn't look like extremely striking, yeah. you know, yeah. there, in a different there's way. no bad angle to this airplane, yeah. at least to me, you know, but yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So, uh, how did it fly? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'd flown F-16s before the fly-by-wire system and, and these days and, and the more advanced airplanes have proven this as well. You have enough power and fly-by-wire, you know, quadruple redundant system you can make a brick fly and from my perspective well, the thing flew pretty well speaking about making a brick fly i flew f4s <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, not, that's, the that's not computers that's just applying power yeah, to yeah, the like, yeah you can make a barn door fly with big enough engines <laughs> but but the airplane to me except for takeoff because it didn't have afterburners and landing because it didn't slow down that well mm, on the ground true. but other than that the actual handling and feel of it was very similar to flying the F-4, the solidity. It was, it was a solid airplane. You know, they talk about the wobbly gobble and all that. The, flying the airplane wasn't like that. I mean, the, air, the airframe, you know, maybe j jittering because it's fly-by-wire and it's, what, 100 computations per second? I don't remember the number. But it, it felt very solid. I, I think one th thing that's worth noting when you talk about how the airplane flies and anybody that's, that's you know, whether you're checking out in a 172 or whatever, you're going you're gonna to go out and do the stall series with the airplane. Well, this airplane, because it was all this flight testing was done in secret, the amount of testing they were able to do was pretty limited. So we never went out and stalled the airplane. There was a minimum speed and we had AOA gauges and stuff. You just didn't fly it slower than the speed. You just didn't, and on the other hand, there was a there was a not to exceed speed that was set if for no other reason that we hadn't tested it any faster than that, wow. and there were the limits, and you flew within them, and that was it's a night fighter, and it was easy to do. It, and early in the testing of the airplane, uh, they certainly learned that what had been predicted in, in their lab environment, and from an aerodynamic standpoint. With a real airplane, it was different, and they had to make adjustments, and they did so. But in some of those tests uh, at various speeds and various uh, altitudes, they noticed that the nose uh, drifted in yaw, and they had to make corrections through the flight control computer to compensate for that or whatever. But a comment was made one day by, I understand, and I think it may have been Ken Dyson uh, made the comment about this thing 
is flying like a wobbling goblin. And, of course, that ended up haunting the program forever <laughs> because in some of the PR uh, videos that were revealed to the public many years later, I always found it interesting that they would mention that at the very time that an airplane seemed to be behind a tanker, kind of going from left to right, moving back and forth. And I'm sure people said, oh, my gosh, that thing must be tough to fly. Not true at all. It's a very stable airplane. Well, that is one thing. So getting a little bit technical here, I mean, it's a V-tailed airplane. And a V-tailed Bonanza pilot will tell you that it does have a little bit of a, a, a kind of a an odd yeah, yaw tendency. A Dutch roll. Dutch rolls, yeah. yeah. So is that something that the computer was able to, uh, to smooth yeah. out? We didn't build it at all. Okay. Yeah, there's no sense whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like riding a bike. Once you get on it and figure out how to yeah. do it, it's a lot of things that are a problem first go away. What it, what it didn't do is slow down. Yeah. So yeah. if you were if you were rejoining on the tanker and you had too much overtake, there were because speed brakes are not stealthy, it didn't have them like a normal fighter would. And mm -hmm. so about the only thing you could do would cross control the airplane and come sliding in behind the the tanker trying to trying to bleed off your airspeed. And, uh, I want to just interject. This sure. is really not applying, but on the ground, you remember, Tonopah, fifty five hundred feet or so, hmm. elevation. High, de high desert. Yeah. And at night, uh, especially in the summer months when it's uh, a little bit warm, you can see some really high uh, ground speeds if you ever did kind of glance down at the uh, INS before a liftoff with a full load. So it... Uh, there was quite a takeoff roll yes. at times. Yeah. With a full load of gas and two bombs, quite a roll. And talk about slowing down. When you guys uh, would land, did you always use the, the parachute, the, the drag chute? Uh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if it would have stopped without it. Really? Wow. Well, it, it would have been harder heavy, than a break. That's one yeah. similarity between the F-100 and the <laughs> 117. God, I hope the drag chute works. <laughs> well, if for no other reason than if you had to – if you had to use the tail hook to stop, it was a big deal because the the hook was was recessed in a trough in the back and covered with this radar absorbent material, and there was an explosive squib that went around it. Ooh, okay. So when you went to, if you needed the hook, and and you went to lower the hook, that squib went off, and all that ram that covered the hook exploded and went all over the place. And then of course now you got a hook and you engage. Well, now the maintenance guys at 11:30 at night have got to go out there and walk the runway because every Get all that classified material, all that classified exactly. material, yeah. Yeah. plus putting the airplane back together, putting that panel back on, the buttering they had to do. That was it was a major project. That's something I never thought. I never realized that the 117 had a hook. I mean, it makes sense. You would be you wouldn't have too many options if you didn't. But yeah. and unfortunately, during Desert Storm, we had one instance where we had a field elevation of about 6,700 feet plus. Had a guy taken off, two bombs, full load, and needed to abort. And guess what didn't come down? Oh, no. That's right. The tail hook didn't come down. Unfortunately, uh, he called for the barrier. Yeah. It came up. He engaged the barrier, and... That was probably our only real major damage during yeah. the conflict. And uh, we had a nice little hangar queen that was uh, 
a source of a lot of uh, parts for us for a while. <laughs> but you talk about putting an airplane back together. It was uh, that was a major challenge. But I know I'm sure these guys will echo it too. It wasn't just we we tend to sit here and talk about the pilots and how and the airplane itself, but there are thousands of people that none of us ever engaged personally who were really involved from an acquisition standpoint, the logistics, the maintenance, the support group, the people working on the food line <laughs> up uh, in the man camp five miles away. I mean, truly, it was a phenomenal uh, accomplishment on the behalf of this country that we could put all of that together and, and keep it secret for as long as we did. Well, there's one more question that I actually wanted to ask about the, uh, uh, this again, very kind of geeky and technical one, but maybe somebody listening will find this as interesting as I do. Uh, when you talk about the support staff and you're talking about the tankers before, um, when I was preparing for this uh, interview, I was reading an article that specifically mentioned that you guys fueled off the KC-135Q, which if I'm not mistaken, that was the model that was used for the SR-71? Absolutely. Um, and what, why was that? Was it avionics? Was it uh, crew secrecy? Was it? Well, it was, it was the classification of the program because okay. we were special access required program and so was the SR-71 and the U-2 program and so the 8th Strat Recce Wing out of Beale was selected to be VR tanker unit. So all the time that we were we're training up the the program and developing tactics. Those were the guys we coupled with. It wasn't until we headed off to Saudi Arabia that we started flying with regular yeah. regular tanker units and and had to train them on. on and that. we were very fortunate; they were in the Southwest U.S. as well. Yeah, nearby. No, it's interesting. You guys basically, yeah, you had your own tanker unit basically that you shared with Beale. Well, and it was it was a little Skunk Works community because yeah. both those airplanes were made right. by the Lockheed Skunk Works as well. Right. well. The uh, so of course we're going to talk about going to Saudi Arabia, um, and the uh, the opening days of that, uh, of course, uh, I think becomes synonymous with the F one seventeen operation. Um, and I I heard you mention it before, uh, kind of in passing, and, and I did want to touch on that. Were the engineers sort of out in the field with you guys for that first big test of this technology? Like, were they actually deployed with you guys? Like, um, the Lockheed like, FSRs, yeah. the field service reps, certainly were with us, and they were they were a key part of it, and they were invaluable at times. Absolutely. Wow. And and I and I heard you I heard you say something to the effect of I hope the stealth uh, stuff works. <laughs> Was that something that they actually were kind of nervous about uh, uh, with this first? They were about that. <laughs> we were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. the airplane had been extensively tested on, on the Nellis test range, uh, and, and we had uh, either captured or acquired SAM uh, units and AAA radars or, or based on intel that, that, the Air Force, that the military had gathered, we, we had, had sites constructed to be able to test, but you don't. You never know until you're going against the actual site on how things are going to perform, and so there was always that 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 question, and and part of that came out of the test community. They go, okay, we we think you're going to be able to get this results against this kind of SAM, uh, ninety percent of the time. Well, okay, how about the other ten <laughs> percent? And there's and there's nothing on the airplane that says 
your stealth is working or it's not. You don't get a flashing red light that says, whoops, stealth is not working. <laughs> so, plus, plus so, <laughs> we, we had no system that indicated we might be being tracked or had wow. no radar warning nothing whatsoever. Wow. So you in, invested your very existence in the, the stealth technology. Because at the time, there was no technology that allowed us to use radar or have radar warning receivers or to be or to talk on the radio. So when we stealthed up the radio antennas, the ILS antennas, all they that. came in. They all came in. And now you're one guy in one airplane doing your stealth thing. Alone, unarmed, and scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, yeah, and... I, I don't know if we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, Chris, um, and talking about the, uh, the the first night of Desert Storm. But I mean, that in and of itself is kind of a paradigm shift in in aerial warfare. I mean, uh, World War II. I mean, the Allies didn't hit Berlin until a couple of years into the war. Um, you know, uh, Vietnam. Obviously, that was a famously slow ex escalation. Um, here we are going into a heavily defended enemy capital as literally one of the first acts of the conflict. How did you guys feel about that? <laughs> How did we feel about that? Uh, well, certainly, uh, this kind of goes back to the previous comments about what test results had indicated, what we could expect. But I got to tell you, as, as we uh, donned our, our gear, headed out the door, that truly was the big question each of us had. But one of the, the one of the challenges that I think uh, bothered us the most as a deployed unit really occurred from the time we deployed there until the start of the war, and that is is that's when we really experienced the fact that growing up in a black world environment, we had unique requirements that no one else appreciated, and or even knew about, or knew about. And there was a price to be paid for that. And, and there was a lot of emotion, time, and effort uh, invested in trying to convey the, the understanding of the need. And that was from all the things we required for mission planning and all the things that our pilots needed inside the cockpit to use in concert with the systems that were on the aircraft so that uh, we could find the target, precisely locate it, and guide the bomb uh, where we wanted it to go. And uh, a little sketch of I think it's going to look something like this or mm -hmm. a, a low-resolution fax uh, from someone saying, I want you to hit this, it just didn't quite hack it. Because you got to remember, the office environment that we worked in was dark, wasn't the great, greatest lighting in the world. Uh, you got the air conditioner blowing your stuff around sometimes, and it, but we made some mo major modifications like milk cartons on our displays uh, to help uh, oh. <laughs> with the uh, lighting in the uh, airplane. But uh, I can tell you that uh, it was no small task to educate the senior leadership over time and to garnish the support that we needed. But it came with time, and it wasn't always a fun exercise getting there. Yeah, tremendous and, and amount it, of stress. It, it was, and it was no, no intent uh, 
from our perspective or from, from, uh, from the perspective on how you got to realize they were dealing with a lot of other things that we weren't even aware of nor were we concerned with. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and again, as Ralph said a minute ago, here we are all of a sudden working with a, a new tanker units who never, never had uh, worked with us. And I suspect from their perspective, there was some apprehension about, gosh, are we going to be up to what's asked of us? Because uh, we go out crawling the airplane at a certain time, crank engines, taxi on time. We didn't ask for ground clearance. We just taxied on time. We pulled into the Army area, lined up in your proper, uh, proper position. Uh, lots of people out there scurrying around doing all the things they had to do and at the appointed time you pulled onto the runway with your wingman and you took off uh, x amount of time apart nobody has said a word to anybody Jeez. you take off join up yeah. proceed north rendezvous with the tanker we never talked to the tanker wow but uh, a great tribute to them yeah now back all that up and think about these young men and women who are putting together all this mission planning. These tankers have to be precisely at an altitude at a time on a certain heading so they can turn and when, and when they roll out headed north, we're oh. right behind them. Yeah. And right we there. slide right. And a, it went on night after night after night. It, it was what? a different procedure than was normal with a, with a fighter that didn't have a, a air to air radar. You know, so that and the weather had, was historically bad oh. during that, that time of year. Probably the worst weather they've had in hundreds of years as far as fog and clouds and turbulence and that kind of stuff. It was. I'd, I'd like to add a point on the, when we were talking about the, the, the stress about introducing a weapon. When, when, when we, de we deployed, we brought with us two bombs apiece, which is what it carries, because we had them in Tonopah. We weren't sure. We knew where we were supposed to be going, but we could just as likely end up someplace else. So we needed to have some ordnance because the Iraqis had rolled into Kuwait and had paused there. But for all we knew, they were going to continue to roll into the oil fields. And so we're there. We've got, we've got one flight per airplane that we can do. And we don't have any target photos. We don't have this or that. And, the th and we're sitting there going, we've got this cutting-edge, highly classified technology, and we're not going to be able to use it because we don't have what we need. And in a lot of ways, we were in that situation well into November. And so it's, it's easy for people to sit here and go, yeah, in, in, this is 17 January, you kicked off. In August, we think we're going in September, <laughs> and we got to get it fixed now because we don't know when we're going. Wow, it, a lot of challenges, and then you, you've got uh, 1,300 to 1,500 people you got to feed, house, take care of, etc. I mean, they're just—it's a real tribute to uh, everybody working together to make it happen. Yeah. Art. We had a tech sergeant uh, contract officer that was in the first airplane with us, and he had a he had a he had a box of a million dollars in it. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and and he his job was to go out there and get what we and lay contracts and put money down and feed the troops. Well, can you walk? Uh, or can you tell me tell me about um, whatever you can discuss about uh, about your first uh, 
combat sortie, the actual flight. We, we were together. Ralph, you start. He, he was a leader of the first wave. We flew two waves the first night. Ralph led the first one. I led the second one. Ge and now Ge was with Ge me. General Horner uh, told me that uh, he wanted me to fly the first night, but he wanted me to go in the second wave toward the end because he just wanted me just to be there to make sure everything was flowing right. In retrospect, uh, what I really think he was saying is, I want to make sure they're really pissed off that they've sighted in all their weapons, <laughs> Ralph, and they're not going to have off. any problem yeah, tell you that. knowing that you're there. <laughs> but uh, again, I, I want to uh, pay one more tribute to these two guys uh, for their leadership uh, leading up. Uh, to that first night. And of course, without a doubt, uh, they both uh, wanted to lead their men in, and I'm just honored that I had the opportunity to go with them. I will say that uh, there was one other full colonel there with us, our DO, uh, Colonel Klaus Klaus, and uh, one of us would stay on the ground each night. I I'd fly one night, he'd fly the next night, and we kind of all We did that with the squadrons also. Squadron commander one officer. night, the ops officer the second night. We just yep. alternate. Being warlords. And quite frankly, uh, emotionally, physically, and over time, that was probably a very wise decision. And our success was such as we get toward the end, and there are those who probably knew that the end was in sight. The pace really picked up, and fortunately, we brought over six more airplanes from home with some more people, and so we were able to pick up the pace. But we actually had nights where we had some of the captains, if you will, maybe some young majors, flying two sorties in one night. And you think about that in a five and a half hour mission per. And so, we, not that we were bending any rules, we were doing what needed to be done to get the job done. I think the one thing that's important to note that the, that the people who were leading the air war were lieutenants and captains during Vietnam. And the way that war was run with multiple sub-wars going on at the same time and whatnot, and targeting decisions being made out of Washington was a lesson that these guys learned the hard way, and we lost a, little, uh, a lot of airplanes then. And those folks now, as colonels and generals office, general officers, had made the determination that we're not going to do that again. And so, so early on, you know, once things kind of stabilized uh, uh, on the ground there, the planning began for, for, for Desert Storm, what we refer to as the storm frag. And that wasn't done in D.C. or Washington, and, and President Bush didn't look at it. Uh, Chuck Horner, who was the air boss, brought fighter weapons officers from not just the Air Force, but the Marines and the Navy, and these guys were the experts in deploying their weapons systems and he got those guys together in a place we called the black hole up in Riyadh and they started planning and those guys didn't plan in a vacuum they had links with the weapons offices that were down and we had our own mission planning cell so we started working on the storm frag the first four nights operation in October and so while we're training and doing all those things it was a constant development of that plan. And so as we got up to 17 January and the Wolfpack order, 
that that came down we were taking a plan that the experts who flew the airplane who had flown it had developed and now we're getting ready to pull the pull the trigger and, and, and even at their level uh, I, I know both general horner and general glossin encounter some resistance uh, from other services about the plan that we had, but wisely, we were fortunate to have uh, General Schwarzkopf come to our location, and uh, he was like a sponge. He took it all in. Amazing. He asked uh, some great questions. He, he probably went back to Riyadh about as smart as anybody uh, up there about our aircraft and, and what it could uh, contribute, and uh, he ensured that both General Horner and General Glossen uh, got what they needed as the air bosses, if you will, to make sure we could we could perform our mission. And we, we had some unique requirements. So, it, so it, was, it was an intricate plan, and it's not just the F-117s and the tankers that are supporting us. There's, for the Army, they had Apache helicopters that were going to come in and take out that, the, the, the listening posts right there. Uh, F-15Es that were going to go do some things behind us, but they needed to, to, to get in early to do their route. Uh, and all that multi-stage plan uh, really integrated all the air assets and was, you know, people will be studying the, that opening night, I think, for a long time because how well it was done and how effective it turned out to be. The one fly in the ointment was was that we had those F-15s I mentioned were going to do their work, and they had some EF-111 jammers that were tasked. This is something the black hole worked together. Okay, the EFs are going to come, and they're going to jam for the F-15s. And I'm thinking it was within a week of, of the war starting off that the idea came, uh, because we were looked at the, at the role we had in, in the more it got finalized, we realized, boy, we've been bragging on the capability of this airplane. We better be able to deliver the goods because if we don't, if we can't do our part to, to, to blind the command and the control system, then all these conventional airplanes that come in are really going to get the crap shot out of them. We, we have to succeed. And so now we're looking at how can we reduce the fog and friction of war, and, and I don't know who came up with the idea, maybe Klaus or somebody else, that as the 111s come into, and I'm motioning with my hands here, as they come into Iraq, instead of uh, immediately heading west, so as you look at it like, like so, let's let them proceed to Baghdad a little bit while the 117s are just approaching the city and they'll turn on their jammers about three minutes prior to the time on target. And all that powerful radar energy will have the Iraqis who are staring at their radar scopes kind of turn their heads and look to the southwest, which is not where we were coming from. And that was going to be a little bit of an insurance policy. Uh, so in case we weren't as completely stealthy as we thought we were going to be, that we'd catch them looking the other way, and we'd be coming, we'd be able to come in and do our job. That sounded like a great plan. But yeah. how was it interpreted by some? <laughs> uh, 
from my vantage point at 24,000 feet arcing the city from the east and looking at Baghdad is, is just lit up like a modern metropolis, like nothing's going on. And all of a sudden, it seemed like every gun in the world shot off at once. And I looked at my watch, and it was three minutes to three. And, and the Iraqis, maybe they looked over their shoulder, but they also said, oh, everybody shoot. So the whole idea that we could achieve all the surprise was completely blown out the window. And these guys just shot like mad the whole time we were in and out of there. So. Wow. That I mean, when you watch that that historic footage of that opening night, uh, it, it, you almost would think that nobody could get through there. I mean, that was, was exactly the thought going through my mind <laughs> as I'm heading into Baghdad, leading the second wave. Yeah. We're coming out because you can see all this yeah. in the distance. Well, I'm, I'm looking yeah. at my map, it, and I, we're just cruising in. Uh, Iraq's kind of like the southwest U.S. There's a city, and then there's a lot of nothing. So I'm cruising in, fat, dumb, and happy. Look at my map. And I look out there, and there's this boiling cauldron of, of shells and tracers and everything going off. And I, my map was folded, and I said, boy, the F-111s must just be blasting the hell out of some airfield. And I didn't see an airfield. So I flipped my map open, and my eyes got really big. And I said, that's Baghdad. That's where my target is. How does an airplane get – an airplane can't go through there without getting hit. Well – it, it was just that kind of a mindset. And then you just, okay, if I don't take it out, somebody else is going to have to do it tomorrow or the next day. And and we're flying straight and level. And we're flying straight and level. And there were things going off above us. So you got things well, trickling down as well. Yeah, and, you know, some of our targets were a little bit lower requirements than others. You know, the airplane has a velocity vector. And exactly where the airplane's going, you look through it, and all you see is tracers. I lowered my seat so I couldn't look through it. <laughs> Seriously. Let's have a flashback to uh, Gregory Peck in 12 o'clock high. We can always remember him yep. flying along his B-17, rocking back and forth, bouncing around. Yep. The airplane was bouncing around. I mean. Black turbulence. So it, it was going off around us. Wow. We were just very fortunate. Yeah, they just missed. To get through it. Wow. I don't know, but they missed. No, they couldn't see you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah we well, it, it doesn't take. Well, it doesn't take. <laughs> it doesn't have eyes. It just, yeah, yeah. It just, they just. Have you ever heard of duck hunting in the dark? Yeah. Fair enough. And 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 the point is that it just takes one round, a twenty-three millimeter, yeah. that opens up the aluminum or whatever metal part of the skin, yeah. and now your radar cross section has gone from being this size to humongous. Yeah. And you may not even know it. Yeah, I guess my point was just thank goodness you guys were flying blind, or you, they, they were shooting blind, rather. Um, exactly. Yeah. The barrage. Yeah. Um, so when you guys get back, you know, when you, when you land back at base after this, it, what's the conversation? You know, I mean, what, how, do you, how do you feel? You know, to me, this is personally one of the most moving moments. I get out of my airplane. My crew chief's there, and he climbs up the ladder, and there's tears in his eyes. Was boss. Excuse me. Thank God, you came home. I don't know what I would have done if you got shot down. And I thought I missed something that caused you to get shot down. Wow. Yeah, and it's, I mean it's easy to forget the 
the emotions and the commitment that all those ground guys had because they'd been there as long as we had and eating worse food and and I don't know if it could be worse but it, it was <laughs> it was pretty horrible but uh, as I was taxing out the first night uh, and just doing what I'm doing in the cockpit taxing out checking the checking the the turret of my the infrared acquisition system it was kind of something on the side of the taxiway that wasn't normal and and I slewed over and then I looked out the window and the taxiway is lined with our guys. The maintenance guys, the, the civil engineers, the security guys, you know, the cooks, the bakers, the candlestick makers, all doing the salute. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's like they're all in here in, in the cockpit with us, you know. And so uh, for me coming off, it's uh, so like just the way the roots work, kind of the first guy in, last last guy out. So when I got to my tanker for the post-striker refueling, uh, and we're not talking to the tanker except when we're hooked up, and now you've got like an intercom line and, and you can you can chat a little bit. And I go, did everybody make it back? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, all these there was 10 of us on the first wave. Did everybody make it back? And he goes, well, sir, I don't know, and, and I haven't heard any. So now it's, it's two and a half hours up. It's two and a half hours back as a commander, not knowing. And Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got to, I'm sure Ralph had the same thing I did. I had a list on my leg of each pilot and each call sign, and I mm -hmm. checked them off. I was missing one. But having turned around and had some issues and, and didn't go. But I didn't know that. Oh, he did air aboard it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't know that. And I just go, oh, my God. It, it just, then I got on the ground and thought of what happened. And it, there, there's two things that first night that really came to my attention about me personally. One was how exhilarating it is to have been shot at and missed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Churchill was right. <laughs> As you head out of the target. And the second was a relief I felt when I knew that all the pilots made it back home. We didn't lose anybody. Yeah. You didn't want to be the first. That, that was a case where you didn't want to be the first. But it's not that we became confident, but we were able, I think, later to focus more on the task at hand and, and not be distracted by what's going on outside the airplane. But I got to tell you, that first night, it was unbelievable. It was scary. Well, and the guys who flew the second night will say, and they were all prepared for us. <laughs> so they, they so you guys had it easy the first night. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they'd hacked their watches the first night wow. and said, okay, second night, they got here at 3 o'clock. Okay, five minutes to 3. Oh. We're turning on the guns. Even though it's 1990, in our chow hall, we happened to have a CNN. feed from CNN. <laughs> and so we got to watch Peter Arnett and John Holloman and Bernard Shaw transmitting from the Al Rashid Hotel and we had some targets in the vicinity and so we had guys in there knowing when the TOT was and they're doing a little countdown and so even though we made it back safely whatever we got it was great criticism if you were five ten seconds late but, uh, <laughs> oh yeah <geez. laughs> CNN live if you weren't within <laughs> at least if you weren't within three seconds you're a loser <laughs> <laughs> that, that was our TOT standard yeah, wow. because you're you're taking multiple airplanes across a target, 
who can't see each other, who can't talk to each other, who haven't talked to each other for three hours. And it, it, the, whole, the whole tactical arrangement depended on everybody having the discipline to be, no matter what the fire was, to be at exactly where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Yeah, I had a group of, I wouldn't say hellion captains, <laughs> but they were a little bit more rambunctious than, than many that had an internal pool amongst themselves on TOT times. <laughs> They had bets going on, just very informal about, oh, you're the loser, you were two, you were two seconds off, you, you're not even wow. in the pool. Wow. It was that kind of a scenario. Because all the missions are on tape, and all the missions are debriefed when we get back down on the ground. And nobody would really believe us, so we had to then box them all up and have them flown to Riyadh so somebody else could grade our tapes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Along with CNN. <laughs> yeah. I, I could easily sit here and talk F-117s with you guys all day, which which I really plan on doing tonight as well, just so you all know. Um, but I, I know Ty uh, has given us a signal that we're running long. Before we go, I do want to also just, uh, again, thank all of you for being here. Thank you for your service. And I want to thank your spouses as well for, for coming up here and making the trip and being that support system for you guys as well. We, we can't thank you enough. I uh, can't tell you enough how honored we are to have you all here. So. So thank you so much for, for being here with us. Well, on behalf of these guys, I want to say thank you for inviting us. This has been a special time for us, and we look forward to this evening. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, Chris, you're, and if you're listening to this uh, after the fact, uh, you really missed a good show. So next time, adjust your time on target and get here for the, uh, <laughs> the speaker series. So, again, thank you all for listening. If you're um, listening at home and you enjoy these, make sure you give us uh, some feedback and reviews, whether you're on – iTunes, Google Play, or right from our own website. Uh, uh, but uh, again, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>